Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Here at the Business Creators Radio Show, we take you to those places where you have those mastermind meetings and aha moments that could possibly change your trajectory or at least bring you an inch closer to serving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Today, I come to you from my sumptuous living room from my apartment here in Las Vegas, known to some, except these days, as the hottest city in America. And we are going to have a conversation about something known as the Triple E Structure. The triple E stands for three words that start with E, emerge, elevate, and excel. What does this mean? You're about to find out. It's about getting unstuck so you can progress to the next level of leadership. Then what does that mean? Let's discover with our guest today. His name is Jim Saliba. He is a certified coach, trainer, and public speaker with a BA an MBA after my own heart, and over 30 years of experience in the leadership world. Jim Saliba, welcome aboard. Come on in. Weather's fine. Well, thank you very much, Adam. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, I just read off your official bio and told people a bit about your concept. It's very impressive. I'm not even sure I'm worthy to be in your presence, uh, and this is my show. So what we like to do is we like to pull the curtain back a little bit. I know you gave us a a number of talking points. We're going to cover a whole bunch of those and what I think is going to be a pretty wide-ranging conversation. But before we do that, tell us in your own words a bit about what has brought you here today, your journey to serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Well, I can tell you a little bit about me that um, I started off as a developer and grew to be a vice president within a large $4 billion software organization. Um, It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work, and I learned a lot about leadership. But then I went out and did consulting to help other organizations do better with their with their software development. And what I started realizing was it wasn't about focusing down on the engineering staff. There was a big gap between what leadership thought was happening and what actually was happening. So I started looking into that more. I became a executive coach. I went through the certification and I started helping leaders really make things happen within their organizations. And one of the big things that I found, especially in big organizations, a lot of people are promoted on their technical skills, but then they lack the leadership skills to make things happen. And that's why I started helping people. And that's where I am today. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess 
one of the first questions that I have here, and we're going to start by defining some concepts and terms, is in your experience, what are some of the most common reasons, since we're talking about impact, what are some of the most common reasons that leaders fail to make any sort of impact on their teams, organizations, in terms of achieving their goals, however you want to measure that? Well, I would say there's two things. One, they get stuck into the day-to-day. There's so much work that we have to do that they lose sight in the vision of what they're actually trying to make happen. And there's too much work going on. We spread ourselves way too thin and don't understand the right things to prioritize that actually bring value to our business and to our customers. And the other one is actually very simple, something that stops everyone, and that's basically fear. Fear stops us, and I define fear for leaders into four sections, what I call the four fears of leadership. The first one is we often call the uh, imposter syndrome or fear of being incompetent, right? I, I don't know why I'm here. Everyone's looking at me. The second one is the fear of appearing foolish. They stop, you know, I've seen so many great leaders get hired for a specific reason to bring in fresh ideas, but there are so much other things going on, they kind of back down and don't bring those ideas to the table. The third one is the fear of failure. I don't want to start. I don't know all the data. Things have to be perfect. So we step back. And the last one is the fear of appearing too vulnerable. Now, everybody hits these fears at one point of their life and career. And often it just holds them back from doing what they need to do. All right. So one of the things about the Business Creators Radio Show, and this is the reason one of the reasons why we're in audio format, aside from the fact that I really just don't want to hold a media pose for an hour, is it wouldn't look too good on the camera if uh, you noticed that I was spending a lot of time taking notes. Not only am I the host, I'm also the number one listener with my pad of paper and two pens out looking for the slight edge in my business uh, thing. So you mentioned four fears, and I think I missed one. So I know the first one was imposter syndrome, the third was fear of failure, and the fourth was fear of appearing too vulnerable. What was the second one again? The fear of appearing foolish. Of appearing foolish. foolish. Yes. 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 All right. Jim, how much do you think of this uh, is rooted in how our children are raised? Oh, yes. Well, everything, of course. This is where it starts. Um, but, you know, it's part of our, our whole human brain as well. Anything that the brain feels as being something that could harm us physically, mentally, emotionally, we immediately pull back on. And since from the very beginning we're taught and A is good, and B is not so good, and second place isn't good, and, you know, you have to make your grades. These push in these emotional harms that our brain is pushing back from. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, if you think about it, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, what, are we, what happens if you don't excel in a topic in school? You are 
punished for it as if you're doing something bad. This is something that's very visceral for me. Uh, I was classified as gifted in school. My IQ was something like 137, 138. Well, I guess it still is, which in that whole continuum of what IQ scores mean puts me at the high end of gifted and a couple points short of genius. What that meant in practical terms is I could master just about anything with moderate effort, except anything having to do with advanced mathematics. Now, I can do basic math, such as addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. I can do it in my head and be off by maybe one. But when you get into measuring shapes and solving for X and that algebraic geometric trigonometry, whatever the hell it is stop. trigonometry yeah, tri trigonometric <laughs> stuff i was trying i was trying to, i was trying to turn it into an adjective but it's still a very frightening thing i i had to struggle to pass those classes so i i, I remember this it was my junior year the the paperwork for me to enroll in advanced placement classes in about four different areas. And for those who may not be aware, advanced placement is when you take classes in high school for which you get college credit. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a certain type. It's a level above advanced. And yeah. the advanced placement curriculum is an entirely separate thing. It's been in the news lately in a few of our states, actually. So the same day I got that paperwork, I got a deficiency report because I couldn't measure a freaking triangle. So, so what was the proposed solution that I stop and I'm and this is and this is the word used use stop fucking around and start studying math. Meanwhile, I was spending about 95% of my outside the classroom time struggling with this math stuff, missing out on the enjoyment of these other subjects which I actually liked. Then it was suggested that I be taken out of the gifted program, reduced to regular academic levels in my other classes, so that I would have more time to get my act together and learn math. I can't believe that. It, it is amazing because everybody has their strengths and things yeah. that aren't so strong. And I find it amazing that as we grow up, and even in so many businesses, we focus on our weaknesses, not on our strengths. Oh, it gets better. It gets better. So I graduated. I, w I graduated high honors, by the way. High honors, by the way. Uh, 3.5. I got both gold cords, which I probably threw away afterwards because that's about how much I cared. But anyway, <laughs> I, uh, went on, I went on to college. I enrolled in Penn State and was accepted right away because uh, I proved a lot of things to Penn State. Number one, I could get the loans. And that was really about it. But they did have to figure out where I belonged. So I remember driving down to the campus, I think it was on a Saturday afternoon, and taking a whole bunch of placement and aptitude tests, one of which was to assess where I really was in mathematics, not what my high school transcript claimed, but what I actually learned. And you know there's a difference. So yes. I got that report back. It was suggested that I take remedial math. However... If I was up to the challenge, it was predicted that I might be able to get by in two classes, trigonometry and college algebra, which was the highest level I reached in secondary. Now, again, I found myself in that same place. I'm devoting all this time to trying to pass these classes for something that is has nothing to do with what I want to be when I grow up and you know if you know what I mean and I was losing the enjoyment of getting to spend time on subjects I enjoyed now fortunately this time around 
I had a different math instructor. And I, I went to her and I, I said, you know, flat out, the only reason I'm in this class is because I'm mandated through the general education requirements to take X number of credits. And candidly, I took I, I, I took classes that you teach because I heard a lot of good things about you. So if you could please tell me, what do I need to do to get by and get this over with without having to work too hard? And she actually told me how to get by. And how did that work for you? Yeah, I, I got I got better grades in her class than I did uh, in high school. Allowing I still, you, I, 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 I still don't know anything about that stuff. I'm told <laughs> I'm told that I used it when I designed a competition grade stereo system for my Camaro, and I and I had people trying to convince me that I used that stuff when I helped my dad finish the basement in his house. But I don't remember it. I mean, if I if there was algebra and there was geometry and trigonometry, I was probably using charts that somebody else created or tools that actually did the work for me, and I just drew little marks with a pencil. So we're, we're doing the exact same thing. We're spending time talking about the things that you didn't like to do, weren't uh -huh. your strengths. What were the other? Tell me about the other side. Oh, oh, oh! Um, history. I, I love history. I my favorite after school activity was going to the library, reading the encyclopedias, and going through volumes of the Who's Who in America, which were those collections of green books that had biographies in them mm -hmm. uh, that that folks may remember. I mean, I mean, you're probably similar age to me, so you probably remember them well. Probably at minimum, use them for research for a couple papers. So uh, that's what I really enjoyed. And knowledge of history has proven so valuable to me in understanding that anything we've achieved up until now is only the result of somehow having gotten by despite having done things the way we've done them, using the best information we had at the time. I know uh -huh. that's a kind of interesting convoluted thing, but isn't that kind of what happens with leadership? When you get into a leadership position, you do the best you can based on a combination of role models, education, knowledge, and experience. And the only thing that can be said for sure is you somehow got by despite all that. Anything, anything else is a matter of subjective proof. Well, leadership is just like anything else. You said the word experience. When we were kids in elementary school, we learned more by absorbing. As adults, we're experiential. We learn yeah. by doing, by trying things, experimenting, right? How many times have you been in a conversation where someone says, no, I did that before and it didn't work, so now I do it this way? We learned. Yeah. Leadership is the same thing. We have to go out there, try some things, and learn. But not just try to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. Uh huh. Well, you know, there. You know, uh, my own business coach, Captain Jim Palmer, the dream business coach, has a saying that he he repeats all the time. He says, "If at first you don't succeed, try doing what your coach told you to do the first time." Now, <laughs> now there, now there, now there's another side to that: is you actually have to kind of mess it up a couple times before you begin to recognize that the reason we have coaches and we have mentors who are our leaders is that they have failed. They have gone down the same path that we do. And in order for their coaching, mentoring, and leadership to be effective, 
they kind of have to let us struggle a little bit and have to let us make some of the same mistakes they did. They They can hand it to us, but they can't understand it for us. And if they harp on us, all we're going to do is push them away. That's why a coach will ask you a lot of questions. I can hand it to people, but they'll turn around and tell me every single why they're different and why Uh it won't work for them. But if I ask a lot of questions and let them actually figure things out for themselves, they might come up with what I thought was the right thing. It might be a little bit different, but soon as you you thought of it, you already have buy-in to do it and actually make it happen than if I just tell you. Right, right, right. So going back just very briefly to move on to your next point, you know, those four fears, imposter, appearing foolish, failure, appearing too vulnerable. Uh, again, coming back, this has to do with how children are conditioned and socialized, that if they, if they get this idea that they are good, there's always somebody to say, who the hell do you think you are? If there's somebody, uh, if there's any concern about fearing, appearing foolish, there's always somebody to bully them and laugh at them. If they're afraid of failure, there's al- al- always somebody there to stick their finger in their face and explain to them exactly the many ways that they're a failure and possibly shouldn't have been born. And as far as appearing too vulnerable, well, yeah, you're pretty vulnerable when you have five or six different adults all yelling at you at the same time and you don't even know which way to turn they're contradicting each other but if you even ask a question about that you're the one that's a smart mouth yeah I, it, <laughs> it, it's it's amazing yeah <laughs> but but we need these things to learn yeah if 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 we didn't fit, we learn so much more by our failures than we ever do by our successes so it's amazing that we put people down for failing yeah, I mean, in my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy, one of the subchapters, I believe the title of it is uh, Fail Early and Fail Often. Yeah, so I 100% believe in that. Uh, being in software development, we talk about agile software development. Oh, yeah. And that's one of the one of the catchphrases is to fail fast. Yeah. And to fail fast is not to build everything that we need that we think a product or or something needs. We believe that we're going to gain money by building this product. Well, what is the smallest thing that I can do to prove or disprove this? And that's what we should be doing. I call it experimenting like a fifth grader. Remember when you were in fifth grade, you had that poster board, the hypothesis, the whole experiment, and Uh then did did the experiment prove or disprove the hypothesis? Well, that's what we should be doing every time we're trying something new. It's not just try something. Frame it around that experiment. What is it that I believe is going to happen? Do the experiment. Did it happen? Right. So many times we don't do that. So we try over and over and over again and without changing. And I think that's the definition of crazy. Is that true? Something like that, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a dispute over as to who actually came up with that quote, uh, but I think it's very valid. And another thing you referenced indirectly just a moment ago is the scientific method. Now, I was horrible in mathematics, still am. Sciences were also never a natural thing to me, but if I had resources 
that I could reference as I was going through it, rather than being rather than being expected to memorize something and spit it back on a test. So in other words, if I could actually do science rather than attempt to master science, I could actually do it and understand it. I I I, I can understand how chemistry works. I can understand the uh, the periodic chart if I have one in front of me. Uh, all all this all this stuff, and that's one of the things that we discovered uh and and so when i hear terms like settled silent science i mean really settled science <laughs> is it really is it really settled because if the science was settled we would still be spraying babies with ddt uh our doctor would be prescribing cigarettes and we would be rushing to home depot to put asbestos in our houses yeah that was yep. all all those things at one yep. time or another oh oh and we would have surrendered in the war on polio which uh has been all but eradicated there, there's only a couple small pockets in the world where polio still exists that's an example of a vaccination that actually worked well this is this is all using that as yeah. you said that scientific whole method. science yes yeah yes. and and even when you think you have it you create a new hypothesis and you test it again, and then once you and you know, once you figure that one out, you have your you have your control, and then your other thing, you test it again. Once you demonstrate that one, you come up with another hypothesis, and right. you keep developing and developing and developing. And I think that not only in terms of leaders improving organizations, but leaders improving themselves, that's very important. Well, that's exactly right. And that's how I came up with that 3E system, the triple E system. Yeah. It's kind of using that as an as a baseline. The whole thing as far as emerging, we are so busy in our day to day. It's about emerging and picking your head up and looking around you. What is really going on here? Take in that information. The elevate is to look down the road, have a vision. Sometimes it's so hard for people to think about how they would like this to turn out a year or so from now. And how do we get there? Build a strategy. And Excel is iterating the plan. I don't right. never believe in taking a plan just the way it is, because when we build a plan, we use on the data and the information uh -huh. we have now. Well, I don't know about you, Adam, but my crystal ball is just as foggy and cracked as anybody else's. So, you know what? My original plan is probably has the same mistakes in it that my crystal ball does. But yeah. if we iterate, every time we iterate, we get a little bit more data and we can look at the plan and say, oh, now I can adjust it. Do this, do that. All right, and then do it again and again and again. And progress is not a straight line. It's no. probably going to zigzag your way there. No, God, straw, God draws straight with crooked lines. That's something, I, <laughs> that's something I believe my entire life, ever since I heard that uh, expression, ironically, in Catholic school. God draws straight with crooked lines. Now, another, now uh, going along with that, one of the things that, folks sometimes find interesting about me i guess and i'm using that word uh euphemistically is that uh particularly when it's work group meetings or team meetings or something like that and uh somebody people were discussing an idea and everybody 
asks 25 questions or spends two minutes framing a question and my answer is well th that's cool or yeah because that's my entire response now <laughs> there there to there there now there are two reasons why i'll take that approach and yeah i'll get challenged like what what wait what but you're supposed to be an expert don't you have something to say i said yeah i said i think it's i think it's fine there's two reasons number one that if i think it's fine i'm going to say that i'm not going to use seven more paragraphs to explain why when everybody else has already said the exact thing same things i would say anyway how many times do you need to say it and second i know that there's only so much you can do in a theoretical environment me blabbing on could cause yet more rabbit holes to appear in the yard that hmm. would delay implementation the sooner we implement the sooner we find out how good this really is and we find ourselves in a situation where we're getting real-time data that will drive us to either move forward or course correct as the case may be necessary that is so so correct um it, it it's amazing it's just that um in meetings, every time we have something like that and we start asking questions, there are so many rabbit holes that we start going down with the the little, well, what about this and what about that, that may never happen. Yeah. Right? So try things out. See how it moves. See how it experiments. And you're going to get much further down the road. As you said, drawing straight lines with crooked lines. Yeah. One of the things I really love, we, we discussed my love of history. One of my key areas of study is I like to read biographies and autobiographies. I've gotten some of the best lessons in leadership from hearing stories, either from the horse's mouth or for from the person guiding the horse or reporting on the horse race of people in real situations dealing with real issues and how they handled it based on their background, their experience, uh, their internal story, what have you, and what the impacts that were, and also some of their learning experiences along the way. So among the things that I discovered is, uh, regardless of what anybody thinks of President George W. Bush, and there were some caricatures about him uh, that he was kind of a kind of a bumpkin, I guess. But when you hear from people who, at least some people who, dealt with him on a regular basis they reported back that he was actually very intimidating to deal with because if you went into a meeting with him and you didn't have your homework done it was not going to end well for you because he if he if you if you had weakness in your position he could rip it apart one story i remember reading about him is that uh there was some meeting in the oval office and they were saying well we need to have a meeting to discuss this and the implications and he just went around the room and he just said okay we'll have that meeting Here's what you'll say. Here's what you'll say. Here's what you'll say. Here's what you'll say. So now that we've had that other meeting, what do we do? Right. Because because part of what Bush did is he took the time to actually study his interlocutors, to do backgrounds on them, and to study their positions and also their experiences. This was caricatured in the press as you know, the thing where you remember he used to make up nicknames for everybody. Mm -hmm. Well, that actually was a manifestation of a creative process where he used the nicknaming as a way of creating compartments in his mind through which he could assess and evaluate them. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah. 
So he didn't really need to have the conversation. He knew everybody's position and already, how, he, yep, how it would already, play out. He already knew. He already knew how that meeting was going to go. That next meeting was going to go. So he was saying, "No, we're not going to drag this out any further. We already know what the, how this next meeting is going to go. So let's get there." That's kind of funny because as I was learning to do training and speaking and so on. Um, I would always say to someone, do you mind if I ask you a question? And my coach and instructor would always say, don't ask a question to ask a question. Just yeah. ask the question. Yep. I candidly find that annoying when people ask me if they can ask me a question. And I and, and you know, what I'll do sometimes I'll say no. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, what, what, no? Yeah, no. No, I don't want you to ask. Now, the funny thing is they'll usually back off. What do you think that what do you think's going on there? Well, you just intimidated them. But I also think that many times people ask, can I ask you a question? Because they find trying to spend time to formulate it in their head and you just disrupted that whole process for them. Pattern interrupts, yes. Yeah. So I think some of this, and I alluded to this a moment ago, this is where I want to go next. And we're gonna get to those three E's in just a little bit when we get closer to the wrap-up. But there's something that you say, and I read about this, and I love it. You say, our internal story predicts leadership capacity. I think we might have already touched on a few of the elements behind that, or maybe I'm wrong. But tell us what that means, because I'm really intrigued by that phrase. Well, we did kind of touch on it already, but since we were born, they put the one person that has been there talking to ourselves, talking to us through our whole life is ourselves. So we listen to our own narration more than anything else. And often that story is sabotaging us. We're telling ourselves that we're not good enough. We're telling ourselves we tried it before. We're telling ourselves all kinds of things. This is our brain in overdrive trying to protect us. So if you have a negative story that's running in your head, that's going to limit the amount that you can do and lead an organization. Once you're able to get rid of that self-sabotaging story or many of them, it opens up the world for what you can actually do, right? Yeah. Positive, positive thinking goes to positive. Negative thinking, unfortunately, goes to negative. So it stops us so often and limits our capacity for leadership. Let me get your thoughts on something. And this is me actually asking you to tell me your opinions on one of my tactics. This is one of the things podcast hosts get to do sometimes. I found... That when I work with clients who have these limiting stories and the limits result in them being hesitant or resident or reticent to do the things that we know through experience will move their business forward, they'll say, oh, I can't do that. Uh, and, what, and that may manifest as, well, we're not in that type of business. If we do that, our entire market will laugh at us, that sort of thing. Now, I have found that it's actually very difficult to get them away from those stories because that is their truth. That is the experience mm -hmm. they've had up until that point. And also telling them they're wrong. Well, now you're telling, now you're directly conflicting with their truth, which can be translated as you're calling them a liar. You don't want to do that either. 
So you can't change it, and it's not really worth it to challenge it. So in my work, what I'll do, without announcing that I'm doing it, in a very subtle way that sometimes I need to do very gradually because I have to figure out what pace they're able to move, is I'll help them create new stories they can lean upon. Ah, uh, yes, of course. So, and and what what we do with that is we look at the last successes that they've had, and we start bringing those stories forward. Well, why did you do that? Because I wanted to try something. Well, that's getting back into experimenting. So, but when you bring those positive stories of success back in, they go over those negative stories and they get pushed into the back. So, yes, that's that's a very great tactic to use. Yeah. So, how can leaders address the need for continual learning because i think a lot of what we've covered in our conversation this past half hour has just been about learning in a landscape that is always changing in the past few years faster than ever well that that kind of is right up my alley because when i talk about leadership and what their skill sets are you can look up on the internet and what are the top skill sets for leaders you can put them all aside. The top two is self-awareness and self-development. We have to be aware of those negative stories and we have to be able to develop ourselves. The problem is the higher you move up in leadership, the less people you have to talk to that have sounding boards. That's why having a support team for you, somebody you could talk to or people you could talk to, like a coach, an executive coach, will help you move forward so you can explore those things. Yeah, I have found in my own life what's been most valuable to me, and I have this clearly identified. I actually have it written down on a piece of paper somewhere, is I have about 20 people that I consider to be part of my council of advisors, and I will pull them into situations where I feel I could be benefited by advice or need guidance or need support, mm -hmm based on what the issue is and what they potentially bring to the table. It's not like every time I have an idea, I throw it all to this whole group, but I pull them in selectively. Uh, sometimes it involves, like, say, my business coach, or sometimes it involves, say, you know, my other mentors or something like that. Maybe it could involve a client. Maybe it could involve somebody I'm speaking with on my podcast. It could be just one of my friends in business. It could be a family member. It could be one of the guys down at the cigar shop. It just all depends mm -hmm. on situation and i have discovered that when you have not only that group but there's also some fluidity to it that you can gain more valuable advice as you go along i'll give you a very trite example of this a couple of years ago i decided uh, as part of a personal branding makeover to hire a woman to follow me around las vegas and shoot me 161 times in other words, create my professional uh, photo portfolio. And I shared a few pictures from that portfolio on my Facebook uh, you know, to get to get some thoughts on it. And a few people started commenting, referencing the fact that I'd already shown them the link to the portfolio. And then this other person jumps out and says, well, you never showed me that link. <laughs> now, what I did is I waited a few hours and just deleted their comment. But what I wanted to say, but I knew it would not be worth it to say is, yeah, I didn't ask you. <laughs> the reason being, they just weren't within the group that I would 
turn to for advice on appearance branding. Right. Specifically because there was somebody from my childhood who used to tell me that I look so pretty and gorgeous, you know, me, me being a boy calling me pretty and gorgeous with a haircut that caused me nothing but derision when I went to school. So they're not exactly in the top five of people I'm going to count on for personal branding advice. That's true. Yeah. But, it but, is... but, I, but I would turn to them for many other types of advice. It's just that wasn't one of them. Right. So often you'll hear about mastermind groups or CEO roundtables. This is to get that type of group for certain situations where they can't get it otherwise. And I think mastermind or peer, peer groups are fantastic. Takes you out of the workday, your norm to norm, normal uh -huh. day, allows you to think about things, talk to other people, that have similar life and problems that you do. And these mastermind groups and CEO roundtables are fantastic to help people move forward. Yeah. Here's something I caution people with when it comes to masterminds. First of all, the positive caution, which is when you're in a mastermind group, make sure that it has something that relates back to Napoleon Hill's mastermind principle. Because you're looking for a group that as a whole, can, can create better solutions than the sum total of each of its individual members. Mm -hmm. The idea is the rising tide buoys all ships. And also, particularly in our environment today, be cautious of masterminds that seem to be all about exchanging referrals and becoming each other's clients. I know, uh, yeah. I know people that will actually, when considering joining a mastermind, find a way to get a list of people who belong to that mastermind and go through and assess which ones they think are most likely to become their clients and make a decision to join the mastermind based on that reason. Now, there's a mastermind I've belonged to for a long time, and uh, the leader of the mastermind uh, kept referring every other ma member of the mastermind to me as to be prospective clients. And I actually asked him to please stop, either stop doing that entirely or be really, really, really selective about handing me just a few. Because here's here's what happens. If you're in a mastermind and most of the other people are your clients, but then there's this one member that would be an awful client for you and you turn them down, then you have to do a little drama of, well, he wouldn't help me. Right. There's that. And think about it. The mastermind is the place where you need to master your mind. If you're not masterminding, you're not mastering your mind, as I like to say. And it's also where you need to be able to freely express. So if I'm having one of those points in my business where I hate what I'm doing and all my clients are jerks, well, where do I go tell that story? Where do I get support on it? If every single person in the, in the mastermind is uh, some jerk client who's making my life miserable. That's right. Well, <laughs> it, it, and, 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 and when you yeah. say things like that, my jerk clients are making my life miserable. That's usually not a reflection on the clients so much as an internal misalignment of yourself. Mm -hmm. Because you're not centered at your intersection of your brilliance and passion. And there's usually some sort of boundary issue that you need to resolve that will empower you to be of better service. And then those clients who actually are great people will cease looking like jerks to you. Well, there's two things there. One, you pointed out that a mastermind group is not a networking group for clients. Yeah. Right? So it's there for something else. So they're abusing it to begin with. Uh -huh. 
Um, but if you're using it for what it's supposed to be, you should be able to open up and say, hey, I have jerk clients. And people will start asking and questioning about that and finding out, well, what the real problem yeah. is. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, is it better? Do you go to a mastermind, get that problem solved, and then have a positive way of dealing with your client that creates a massive improvement in that relationship? Or is it better to stew over it and end up taking it out on the client? I'm going to say option A is the one I would yep. go with seven days a week. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I, but, you know, you can't always control how people come into these groups. And that's why the facilitator has to be really careful on how they put the groups together and who they bring in. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I know that this is a little bit different from what we were originally discussing, but I think the mastermind thing is so key because when we talk about leadership, it can get lonely at the top. Yes, very much so. I mean, one of my biggest jobs as a executive coach is to be a sounding board. And, and that may be kind of silly. Why does somebody pay you to do that? But it is lonely at the top, and they need a place to start thinking out loud about things. I can't tell, me, tell you how many of my clients say something along the lines of, you know, now that I sa said it out loud, that's really stupid, or that's really good, or, what, or something like that. But they have to verbalize it uh -huh. with someone first. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is why so, this is why leaders sometimes make the mistake of taping their private conversations for posterity. Because if those tapes ever get out, it makes them look like anything from an asshole to a lunatic. <laughs> but however, we know that in order to reach executive decisions, you have to plow through some pretty raw emotional stuff sometimes. Uh, like if you like, I, one of the things I like to bring up is Richard Nixon's tapes that he made in the Oval Office. And if you listen to them, if you listen to them for any level of uh, clarity, you find out that pretty much any issue that was presented to him by his advisors could be solved either by giving somebody money or launching a nuclear attack. The actual um, solutions he came up with 95% of the time did not involve paying people off. And fortunately, 100% of the time, it did not involve nuclear bombs. But he did speak wistfully about launching several nuclear wars. But he needed to get that out of his system so mm -hmm. that he could see the issue clearly and deal with it rationally. Mm -hmm. Well, how often do people have to vent first before the idea yeah. comes out, right? Uh-huh. That's every day. That's all of us. And we do that laughingly with our, our friends and family and whatnot. But it it's hard for many leaders to do that because we look at them like they know everything and uh -huh. they're beyond human. Right. Yeah. So So we look at our leaders like they're everything beyond human. We expect unrealistic things of them. And if we expect unrealistic things, we're going to be very disappointed. Well, isn't that why almost every religion has some clause somewhere in their book to the effect of don't worship other human beings? Uh, something like that. I would, yeah. I, I would have to <laughs> agree with that. Uh -huh. that, that. That's the reason why. Human beings are, by definition, fallible. Of course we are, yes. Uh -huh. So here's another thing that you cover and i know and as i predicted beginning this would be kind of 
wide ranging and it would uh, touch a number of different dots on the radar screen. But you mentioned something called executive presence. And I get a feeling when I hear that term, but I want you to tell me what that means and how it fits into everything we're discussing. Well, you know, there's two sides of us. There is the side of how we see ourselves outwardly, and there's how people see us and into us, uh, called reputation. Of course, that reputation, how we see ourselves is often different than how other people see us. So executive presence is trying to put those two things together. I look at it as identification. How do we see ourselves? How do we define ourselves? Presentation, how do other people, how do we carry ourselves? How do other people see us? Communication is very important. You know, we have two ears and one mouth and we should operate that way. Yeah. And affiliation is our network. Who do we know? Who helps us? And who's the opposite side, right? Who fills ourselves and who's the anchor that drags us down? And the fifth part is action, putting all those pieces together. And it puts together, hopefully, someone who is authentic and not just putting on that virtual suit of armor every time they walk into a meeting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, cer I certainly get that. And, you know, what I found, you know, my primary line of work is working with entrepreneurs to launch their podcasts. And what I run into sometimes is an overriding concern about perfection I have seen stories and podcast support groups of people being frustrated, saying something like, I recorded this 30-minute episode, and I'm now in my fifth hour of edits. Huh. I'm thinking, what? You're editing? For what? Podcasting is meta-marketing, which means we see people authentically for what they are. The format of this show we're on right now, the Business Creators Radio Show, is the listener is invited to sit in as that third person on a mastermind conversation taking place in some quiet little tavern or pub or lounge or something along those lines where they're listening to a couple people throw ideas back and forth, picking up a few aha moments along the way. And between you and I being the two primary participants in the conversation, we kind of bounce ideas back and forth and one will be saying the other and the other will be saying, oh, oh just can't <laughs> wait to jump in because something just popped into our mind. Like half the things I discuss, half the things that we've discussed and some of the things I've told you about myself and my own experiences, when we logged in to start this call 45 minutes ago, weren't even weren't even on my mind. There, there was no way that I thought, oh, yeah, I'm going to run this by Jim. But that stuff naturally came up as yep. a result of things you said. That's masterminding. That That's right. And... You know, you, you said something about perfection. Well, I can procrastinate like the best of them. Oh, yeah. Because perfection is my Achilles heel. I have the, I have the same thing. Uh, I procrastinate when I need to rise to my highest level. So it's to the point where I have figured out that if I need to do something that's a deep dive, like a big project, first of all, I need to schedule a day to take care of a bunch of little stuff so that nothing can jump in and uh, distract me like a squirrel, uh, take me away from that thing where I really need to bring the A-plus game, for example. And another is I also need to budget time into that day or that half day or whatever I've set aside to go into the trance to spend the first hour or so just kind of goofing off. Science shows that when you 
just kind of goof off for a little bit, it helps to get your mind primed to go into the trance. Oh, that's an interesting, interesting tidbit of information. Is that why I do that? It's it's not, it's not entirely yep. removed by from the reasons why you get your best ideas while driving, grocery shopping, and in the shower. It's the it's the same reason that Jeff Jeff Bezos. Ah. It's the same reason that Jeff Bezos washes his own dishes after dinner. The reason is very simple. It's ten minutes he can spend doing a rote task that will release the pressure on his mind to allow mm -hmm. it to run freely. And he said he's gotten some of his best ideas while putting his dishes back in the cupboard. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I guess for me, my Zen moments is bicycling. I like to be out on the bicycle and yep. experience the world around me. And it just frees up my mind. That's exactly what it is. It takes the pressures of having to think off so that your brain can do what it needs to do naturally. And that's where it spits out some of the things that have been forming subconsciously uh -huh. as a result of the experiences you've been having formed into new ideas. Uh, whenever, I, whenever I compile data for my CPA to put into QuickBooks, I, you know, I'll have my bank statements out, I'll have my QuickBooks open and everything else. I'll also have a pad of paper and two pens sitting by me. The reason why is because I look at those numbers, I start coming up with business ideas. <laughs> it is it is just the strangest thing, but I go with it because I've got, because I've, I've actually launched a business based on something that came to me while I was I was bifurcating which part of my income were the merchant fees and which part were the money I actually kept and how to properly categorize them based on which of the merchant processes they came from. In the midst of all that, somehow I figured I figured out the primary need that podcasters have that stopped them from launching podcasts in the first place and how can I deliver that so they know that uh, doing the first step will be covered by the second step. Let me ask you a question, Adam. When you take notes... Do you handwrite in a notebook or do you take them and type it into a computer? I usually type it. And here's the reason why my handwriting is that bad. <laughs> I'm, I'm aware of the science that when you write it, it imprints a little more deeply. But I also allow that I need to be able to read it. And I also uh, recognize that part of the, th the process of doing that, and this is just my interpretation of it, is you download it and capture it. So it doesn't escape from you. So a few days later, you're not looking to write a blog post for your website and thinking, what was that idea I had in the supermarket yep. the yep. other day? Damn it, what was it? <laughs> As you stare at that blank screen. Because yes. you put it down somewhere, you download it, now you have it. Yes, so I handwrite. And yes, my handwriting is also terrible. But as I did it more... I slow down a little bit my handwriting so I can read it later. Well, sort of read it later. It's still yeah. a bit of a scribble. But it just slowed my brain down enough that I captured things and actually think about it deeply enough that I remember instead of it being a fleeting thing that just happens. Exactly. So as we come close to the end here, let's bring this to the denouement of emerge elevate and excel the triple e structure take it away jim so basically it's the three things and how i help coach people and i have six steps 
in there, right? Two steps for each of those phases. And that's the basis of the book I wrote, which is the six-step leadership challenge you can find on Amazon. But anyway, uh-huh. it merges about looking at yourself. How, how am I emerging to... Um, How do I see the world? How do I fit in the world? How do I engage the world? That's all about Emerge. It's it's stopping and looking at the world that you're living in. Elevate is looking down the road, down the horizon, creating a vision, creating a, a strategy for getting to that vision. And we could spend an hour just talking about difference of strategy and planning, but let's create a strategy and, and just the steps to get there, big steps, not all the little tasks that are in between. And then Excel is about iterating the plan to get there. I build it into a 30, 60, 90 day plan, which includes learning, which we talked about earlier in each one of those steps. Um, I also have this idea of um, the four leadership quadrants, four areas that leaders do well, at least from my viewpoint. One is vision and strategy. Second is execution. Third one is all about people and processes. And the fourth one is executive presence. So if you make a swim lane of each of those in your 30, 60, 90 day process, those are the things you're going to work on in each of those paths. And then after the 90 days is done, you're going to do it all over again and iterate even in a bigger cycle. And this is how I help my uh, clients move forward in their leadership and grow their businesses. Right. And see, what I, I like is how you build into the fact that, A, it's stepwise. You're not attempting to achieve everything all at once. And also that there are learning steps involved in it. Yes. Well, this is learning through experiencing, right? So I'm going to do something in my first 90 days. I might have planned things for all 90. After the first 30, I'm going to say, okay, can I really do the other ones? What have I learned? Do I need to change? And that allows us to tweak our action onto the strategy little by little. And then at the end of the quarter or the end of the 90 days, we look at it again, celebrate what really worked for us, what we accomplished, and then also start saying what's going to happen in the next 90 days. And we do it again. So it's, it's, it's iterating within iterating. Well, um, that is, that is really fantastic. And I really appreciate you sharing that and everything else with us today. So as a final question here, I just uh, want to bring this to a point where somebody listening to this can jump off because I trust some of our listeners have taken down a few notes or maybe even had a few things pop into their mind that you and I didn't necessarily discuss is we're about to end here. So somebody who comes to the end of this stream and decides they want to spend five minutes taking some sort of action to move themselves forward, move their business forward, what would you suggest they do? Think with the end in mind. Where do you want to be? Start with the vision. Where do you want to go? That's your first step. Okay. And and then build your steps to get there. Learn along the way. There's an expression, and this was used by some of the early explorers who came to the new world. I, I can't remember which one it was, but 
he gave his soldiers instructions to burn the boats. And the hmm. point behind that was, is there was no turning back. Right. As long as those boats were on the shoreline, they could always retreat. But no, they had a goal and they were going to finish that goal one way or another. So knowing that there was no way to retreat in his mind increases their chances of success. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, I can't so, go back. I can yeah, only go forward. Right. So to me, that's part of it. So what I'll say to people sometimes is there is no plan B here or this is the only option. This is how it's going to happen. And by making that statement, I look to create a mind frame of putting their brain to work, both consciously and subconsciously, of creating the steps and the actions that will lead them there. I spoke in an event a few years ago, and one of the other speakers I shared the stage with, I can't remember his name, but I do remember him telling the audience, stating as a fact that he was going to live to be 107 years old. As a fact, not, not speculation, not something that came up in actuar actuarial study. He just said, I'm going to live to be 107 years old. And then he paused. And he said, hmm. he said, of course, I don't know if I'm going to live to be 107 years old. But if I state that I'm going to be 107 years old, then I am using my mind to stack the deck in my favor because me declaring that I will live to be 107 years old will guide me toward actions to increase the likelihood or possibility of that happening. Ah, yes, that, that's very true. Again, having a vision. Whereas yeah, it, starting with the end in mind, it's all, it's also, it's also a target because you can't hit a target. You don't, you're not looking at. That's right. Uh, and I talk to people all the time, another business failure. They use the measures they have instead of the measures they need. We have two minutes bifurcate that for us. The measures, the measures they have versus the measures they need. Okay, so often we have data we have data available. So I use that to predict or measure how I'm moving towards my target. But the data you have may not have anything to do with your target. So often I talk to people about measures, either measuring actions, output, or outcomes. Outputs and actions are easy to measure. How we get to the outcomes is difficult. So measure the things that get you to your outcomes. Otherwise, you're just delivering a lot of stuff. When I was in the web development world, when I had a web development business, and uh, our clients would, you know, would plug the site into Google Analytics or any other script they wanted to use, and then they would want reports on their analytics. Mm -hmm. Now, them going in and looking at their dashboard and pulling the data they need, there wasn't enough. They wanted us to write stuff down and put it on paper. And I would ask, well, what do you want to know? Everything. Everything? Well, what do you want to do? with? I need to know everything that's going on with user behavior on my website. How many visitors? How many uh, unique versus... Yeah, how many unique ver visitors versus raw visitors? Time on page, bounce rates for... Well... It very quickly got to the part where they just thought that they were supposed to know that. Otherwise, they weren't serious in business. Right. But what data do you really need? Where are you in the business? If you are still at the stage in your business where you're attempting to build a viable email list, the only real metric you need to know is how long people were staying on the opt-in page 
and what percentage of people are opting in versus how many people visit and looked at from both a raw and a unique view. Mm-hmm. Then the next step is you look at those people coming on the email list. Now you might want to shift the pivot to, all right, how many people are opening my emails? Okay, that's great. So let's get those open rates up. That's where you focus. Let's get more people opening. Right. Okay, now you got people opening. Now they're paying attention. So this is the point where you start to look at click-throughs. Right. You see, are they actually reading them? And is what they're reading inspiring them to take the action of clicking? Now you circle back to what is that landing page doing? Because first you got to get them there. Then it's valuable to know what that landing page is for. But if nobody's visiting, why are you spending a whole lot of time on it? Maybe have a note at the bottom that says the opt-in page for the special report got 282 visits and 33 opt-ins. But that's as far as you go with it until you solve those other issues. Right. I mean, looking at how many people have come to your website, even though there are zero people opening it, you're looking at the wrong number. Exactly. Exactly. So as you can see for our listeners, Jim Saliba is somebody who has what I find a very high level of being able to analyze, bifurcate, and dissect issues to identify trends, indicators, and success factors. Mm -hmm. And I encourage you to reach out to him. So go to his website, which is SalibaConsulting.com. That's S-A-L-I-B-A Consulting.com. It's a a great website. You're going to see all the information about him. He's got a, speaking of optims, he's got a great special report on revolutionizing your career, an insider's guide. There's the opportunity to book a call with him if you'd like to speak with him. And when you do that, make sure that you mention that you heard about Jim on the Business Creators Radio Show. I'm not getting anything for that, but I just want to share the love with Jim. And he's also available on LinkedIn and Facebook. You want to check him out there. And with that, Jim Saliba, thank you so much for being with us today. It has been an honor, and believe me, an education. Thank you. I enjoyed being here. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.